Hello. <clears throat> Hello, friends. Once again, thank you for coming by. Uh, another Merged Worlds Dungeons and Dragons story stream. Um, today we'll be continuing with our epic tale. Well, reasonably okay tale that hopefully one day sounds more epic. Um, but I appreciate you coming by. <clears throat> Give me the chance to say it. So... As always, I'll give it a minute or two for folks to arrive, and then I'll do a brief recap from where we left off. Um, hopefully some of you have heard the last episode, so this won't all be new stuff for you. You'll have an idea of where we were. Uh, we'll see. Uh, all right. So, since we last met, I uh, wanted to give an update I have been writing more Merged Worlds story. Um, we're still a short distance away from hearing everything that has been played up until this point. And it has always been my intention to continue telling the story where I wanted to take it, even though we never did continue playing it. So um, I have had s several years of writing this story in my head to get it the way I wanted it to. And so now I'm finally getting it on paper. Um, so I'm excited to, to see that take life, if you will. Um, but yeah, it should be hopefully a uh, continued good time. But I thank you coming by and hanging out with me. If you have a good time today, please remember to click like and subscribe if you're on the YouTube. If you're on Spotify or iTunes, remember to give the uh, a rating, a sub, a follow, whatever it is on your thing. <laughs> whatever it is, a review, any of that would be greatly appreciated. Tell your friends. Tell your grandma. <laughs> tell everybody. So, uh, Jim, hey, Draven, just made it home. Excellent. Jim and Smashley have arrived. It's officially a party. <laughs> so where I left off last week, um, our group of heroes and many of their loyal allies were traveling to Oromon to finally face the Emperor uh, in what they hope to be a final confrontation. Will it be? I don't know. We're a ways from there. We'll find out. I'm not sure. Maybe I don't remember. I'm just kidding. I remember. So, in order to do that, Tobias, the Keeper of Time, says that he can't go there himself for reasons. And neither can Balin, their friend, the Dragon. So the only way they can go there is if our heroes get there first and open or break one of the little hourglasses that he gives them that links him, at which point he can teleport to that area. Open up a portal, if you will. Um, so, hello, Turtle. <laughs> in, uh, in order to do that, they are having to travel northwest uh, they've left Serenity up around New Kenderhome and are traveling through a large mountain range that they've never been through before. It's a short week or two distance away from Serenity, but it's mostly barren and there's no reason to go up there. There's nothing they've ever known or seen that lives up in that area other than the Kender. And most people don't go near them if they can help it. So... They're up and going north and west, and they found an interestingly cut road. And they followed it until they found an interesting door. 
They made their way inside these doors, deep inside of the mountain, where they found some type of magical mechanism that opened even more doors that brought them into a grand chamber. And in that chamber, they found what they believed to be, <clears throat> in some form of stasis, uh, different creatures, many they've never seen before. Some they had um, and knew them to be quite dangerous. The exit they were trying to get out of on the opposite side of this room was relatively jammed. And Dandy was in there and they were working on opening that up. I believe they had just gotten the door open when Darsh noticed that there were cracks in some of the walls and runes holding one particular creature, uh, which appears to be some form of beholder. If you're not familiar with what a beholder is, I realize I didn't go into a lot of detail last week. So, a beholder, for all intents and purposes, is a large ball with a giant eye in the middle. It has multiple tentacles come off the top of its head, uh, kind of like you'd imagine a Medusa mite, but instead of snake ends, they have smaller eyeballs on the end. Now, these things are large and they fly, or levitate or float. Yes, midnight, they do. They are uh, large floating creatures, and they are overwhelmingly intelligent. Genius-level intelligence, to be honest with you. Um, and they're incredibly powerful. Their eyes, each eye has its own specific ability or spell casting type ability that mirrors a spell. And depending on the type of beholder, those spells can differ from creature to creature. This one was an unusually large one. It is definitely a D&D cover-up monster. It is one of the classic big boss monsters to fight. Because beholders are tough. Usually your dragons, your beholders, your liches. I would say those are probably your big three bosses in Dungeons and Dragons. In most situations, of course. So, seeing these cracks and seeing the thing inside starting to move a little bit more. Looking around the chamber, he saw that several other of what appeared to be stasis chambers of some kind were flickering a little bit as well, letting him know that the damage was very likely not contained to just this one stasis chamber. And he immediately called out for everyone to basically make a break for it, because if this thing breaks out, there's going to be problems. So everyone was, at this point... Not knowing exactly what he's yelling about, but trusting that Darsh knows what he's yelling about. Everyone starts making their way down the stairs towards the central, <clears throat> which was a, was a central dais in the middle of this big ball room. <clears throat> and uh, it was like a walkway going across crossbars. And so they're rushing down to where Mercy and friends were trying to get the door open and had succeeded with the jammed door somewhat that the door had opened on one side. The whole thing hadn't opened yet, but most of the humans and such were going to be able to fit through there. It's going to be a little bit harder for the Minotaurs and some of the larger humans like Miasha and Seamus. Um, and anybody wearing plate mail, to be honest with you. Weston would probably struggle a little bit as well. These guys are wearing large sets of armor as they're traveling. They're prepared for many things. 
so as this is happening, everybody starts making a break for the door. You'll remember that in the center of the room, there was a red orb floating that matched kind of the yellow orbs that were in the other rooms. No one knew what that was. No one had touched the red orb yet because, yes, I know, because red could be good or red could be bad, right? Many people, red means stop would be notated as a problem, but um, doesn't necessarily mean everybody feels that way. Red might be good, right? Guess we'll see. So, as Darsh is running up there, he starts calling out to everybody what he's seen that the things are alive and potentially breaking out. Now, during the time this was going on, there were a lot of questions by the characters about timing. Why is it that these things happen to be breaking out just when they're going through? I thought that was a good question. The way I kind of explained it was, and this is kind of what they had believed as well anyways, the first part of it, there was some type, either the merge itself or some type of earthquake had caused damage to this place. There's no sign of battle. Whoever was here, lived here, there were chairs. I mean, there's things, obviously, this is made by some type of creature, intelligent creature. No one here, ain't no signs of battle. <clears throat> so the belief was that some type of earthquake, possibly through the merge, had weakened or damaged the mechanisms or, or just the rock in the mountain itself. And it was strained and already weakened. And when they started coming through opening up doors, that just caused more stuff to shake and move. Basically, they're starting to force doors and using the magic orbs to slide open big mechanisms. It was enough to continue jarring out and causing some of those cracks to splinter. Had they not entered, it may they, these things may never have gotten out. <clears throat> but they did enter. And that is a problem. A sound like thick glass shattering, if you know what I'm talking about. A thick glass shattering is much different sound than like a thin glass. Like a windshield shattering in a car is much different than a, you know, smashing a magnifying glass or dropping a cup kind of a thing. Glass. Like a thick glass shattering mixed with a pop noise. Our heroes hear this noise coming from one of the upper chambers, not from the side where the beholder creature was, <clears throat> but on one of the other sides. Everyone's weapons are out at this point. Well, Darsh has stepped in and has basically taken over the I'm going to open this door thing one way or another. Darsh, hands down, the strongest person in this entire group physically. Physically, his strength is incredibly strong. Partially magically boosted through a couple of magic items he has at this point, but he's overwhelmingly strong. And he starts trying to force the last door over and up that people can get through. And occasionally, he's, he's pushing others in. No, letting people through, pushing through. At the same time, Dandy's inside. You remember, she snuck through, and she's trying to turn that ball as hard as she can. You know, she's trying to help Darsh. Because her t it moving a little bit is the same as him pushing a lot, Right? The mechanism is somewhat broken or clogged. One of the doors was bent. They got that one up and it moved, but the other one doesn't seem to be moving at all. A screech noise. 
is heard. And looking up in the chamber, again, it's relatively lit in here. It's gloomy. It's not super bright, but the runes and such and the lighting that's in here is enough that you can see across it. They see something that appears to be at least four or six-legged crawling out along the ceiling. Um, Their estimation, it's probably about 10 to 12 feet long. Um... And they can see the glint of metal on it. So whatever it is, is wearing something metal. But the screech that it made was definitely not any type of tongue anyone recognized. Dar steps away from the door and starts pushing through everybody who will fit. You know what I mean? Uh, The larger group, which is going to be Seamus, Miasha, the Minotaurs, probably Weston, are taking a defensive stance. Their goal being, at that point, nothing else happens and they can't get the door open, they'll hold the line while everyone else can escape. Now, this is unacceptable to some of the people in this party. Some of them have a problem with that mentality. Mercy being number one. Mercy being a, I am not leaving without my men kind of thing. Leave no man behind kind of leader that she is. But in this situation, knowing how important she and Artemis are to this quest, and putting the quest first, even Darsh has a hand, and literally picking her up and putting her through the door, which she was not happy about. And once inside, Quan and several of the others were trying to basically pull her through, but she was fighting. She did not want to go through there. Now, Nathalian is there, and while he's inside... He's still on the inside firing up arrows at this point. He's the only one making any real ranged attacks. The mages are inside, but they are prepared to step out should they need to. Casting spells. At this point, they're trying to think of spells they could use to block or bar the door to keep whatever it is from coming through. While that looks big, they don't know if everything in here is big. Now, at the beginning of the shattering noise, the glyphs on the wall start to blink and change to a red color. Start pulsating. Start to hear a noise. That just sounded like a, a, a loud heartbeat with more and more of a whine to it. Something like that. So... The, the red ball in the center is also blinking at this point. <clears throat> Not sure, of course, what to do. Darsh is back now trying to force the door open because he wants to save everybody. Yeah, he'd like to live too. He's got family out there. And he's basically in the door at this point with his back against one, his feet up against the other, just pushing as hard as he can. While Jorn and everyone else is preparing to take on because the thing that's on the roof drops down to the walkway. Uh, While I said it was about 10 to 12 feet tall, it's actually about 6.5 feet high. Um, Imagine a centaur-like creature whose body, lower body, is like a very long lizard. And the upper part doesn't doesn't come straight up like you'd expect on a centaur. It more like comes forward and curves up. So the thing looks like its its head's moving towards you at all times. But it does have a humanoid-looking head, although somewhat still reptilian. Um... It has four fingers, like a 
thumb and two opposable fingers, something like that. Um, it looks like it's wearing gear that would hold weapons. You can see sheaths and things on its on its belt that it has wrapped around its humanoid size. But there are no weapons to be seen. So the creature comes hurtling forward. Darsh is still working on the door. We got Jorn, Garrick, who is the Minotaur, uh, Cleric, and Seamus, kind of holding the line with Miyasha behind, he healing should it be needed, kind of a thing. And the thing comes barreling in. Now, against some of the humans and such, it probably would have bowled them right over. But the Minotaurs are much bigger. <clears throat> and it attempts to literally just bash through them. It's like its intention is to get to the door more than it is to bother them. <clears throat> they just happen to be in the way. Um, but as they come in, both Garrick and uh, Seamus get a good grip on it and grab it by... It is wearing some type of metallic armor on its body, on its upper body. Managed to get a hold of that and start pulling it back. Well, at the same time, Jorn just starts beating it in the head. And it's not affecting it that much. And when it's realizes it's being held back, it starts lashing out as well. And it's strong. <clears throat> it doesn't have weapons, but its punches to the Minotaurs are the equivalent of a Minotaur punch. You know, they're, they're, This is how hard they would expect to get hit in the arena if they're battling. So, they end up starting... Now, luckily, they're armed, but the thing is smart and appears to be trying to get a hold of some of their weapons. It gets in close enough that it's trying to wrestle, and with its long body, it's very easy for it to get leverage. Someone who's standing straight up, just trying to push forward, bang over, to kind of make them fall over and try to get a hold of them. That's, and that's kind of what it's trying to do. Get them to fall where it could probably stomp on them with one of his feet. While this is going on, another shattering noise is heard from somewhere else. And within a moment, a creature comes flying out. And this one doesn't appear much larger than the average human, but it does have long bat-like wings on its back. Uh, this also appears to be wearing some type of clothing, from what they can see, uh, but no signs of any weapons. <clears throat> it seems to kind of be floating in space for a minute, looking around, seeing what's going on, and seeing the commotion begins to fly down towards them as well. It's at this time that Darsh feels the door give a little bit, and it actually slides in a few more inches. Now, it's still going to be hard for him to get through. He doesn't even know if he could without taking off all of his gear and dropping it, which is something he'd prefer to not do either. But it is big enough that Miyasha can squeeze through at this point. Because while she's very tall, she's also relatively thin. Um, and she's able to squeeze through, and so could Seamus. Although Seamus doesn't want to, Darsh orders him through, which he does. Eventually goes, unhappy about it. Same kind of thing. You know, Seamus is yelling him to get Mercy out. He can't really <laughs> hypocritical spin around and say, no, I must stay too. Craziness. So he and Miyasha manage to squeeze through. It leaves just the three Minotaurs. Oh, and... Uh, why am I forgetting his name? Weston. Weston is still there. Now, with, with his thick plate mail, he's thicker than both, because both Seamus... 
and Miyashi's Mal in a robe. Seamus always wears, he's like a kilt kind of guy, and he wears like some leathers and stuff, maybe a little chainmail. They were going to war, he'd probably wearing a bit more, but on this travel, he's not wearing a huge hunk of armor. A lot of these guys have their big armor in the uh, chest of holding, but uh, Weston wears his. He's a paladin, he does not walk around without his paladin gear on. Got the big old shoulders and everything on it, like you'd expect. He's going to have a hard time getting through. But he has his big sword out. Remember I said he uses a big two-handed sword. And he's fighting that. And as he's coming, trying to attack it, Creature grabs his arm. Now, Garrick has still got a grip on the other side of the thing. He's got his, Garrick's got his arms wrapped around its arm, trying to keep it from punching, while kind of just beating with his other hand. His weapon's fallen to the ground already at this point, so Garrick's just punching. And Weston's trying to... Or not Weston. Um, yeah, Weston's trying to come down with his big double-handed sword, and his hand gets grabbed. And the lizard thing is trying to... You know, is, is bending his arm, trying to take the sword out of his hand. And Weston reaches down and grabs the only weapon on his belt and pulls it up and hits the creature square on the arm with it. This is the first time he's wielded the, the Hammer of Truth. And when he strikes down against that thing, that thing's arms... Don't burst into flame, but it's that kind of an effect, but with like a white flame. And the thing screams out in pain and stumbles backwards, dropping Garrick falls to the ground, because now it's trying to go the opposite direction. He's, he's been trying to hold it the whole time. Garrick falls to his knees, quickly trying to scramble back up. The creature comes back, and its arm is actually blackened, like it's been burned. The flames are gone almost immediately, but the... The arm itself is just seriously injured. And it backs up a little bit. And it, it seems to be calculating now. It's like, okay, well, wasn't expecting that. On the inside of the room, Dandy is still trying to turn the orb. Now, you have to understand that the orb itself, it's not a strength thing. If someone stronger was to grab the orb and turn it, it wouldn't make a difference. The orb itself is just basically linked to the door. She's just pulling on it as hard as she can, so that if Darsh can somehow unwedge it, hopefully the mechanism will continue the rest of the way. You know what I mean? So it's not like she... It's trying to go. It's as far as it's going to go. She's She has no strength in that. But she's pulling real hard on it, so if Darsh does ledge it through, hopefully her oomph will just kind of throw it open the rest of the way and the door will go. That's what they're shooting for. Another shattering noise is heard, this time a much deeper growl, although nothing can be seen. It's still just our three minotaurs in Weston that are out there. Now, while this is going on, the mages are trying to, you know, talking, they're trying to figure out what we do with this and that. Like, they're not casting a ton of spells right now, because there's all these people in the way. They can't shoot it through this door opening and hit the minotaurs and such. The walkway's wide, but not that wide. They're also trying to figure out the mechanisms. Is there anything else that they can do? And they've determined that whatever this is, either a stasis chamber or such, as the doors don't open from the inside, they assume it's some kind of prison. It's some place where these things have been locked away for a reason. This is what is deduced by both the characters, our heroes, um, and the mages working with them. That these things have been locked in here for who knows how long, 
Um, and if they were locked into something this secure, there's probably good reasons for that. This puts them in a weird conundrum. Because if they can get the door open to get out, will they be able to close it? And even if they can, what's going to happen to the other door? The other door they came in is wide open. Technically, would lead to serenity by way of a kinder town. Anything going out that other door is going to pop out on the same road they did, which leads right close to the Kender Town, and eventually to the closest living city, which is Serenity. So even if they can get out of here, what do they do? If these things get loose, can they go on this adventure knowing that these things are left behind? Potentially ruining and killing everyone they know. Mercy and Artemis, while unhappy with the situation, are still also talking, looking around the room, searching for anything they can find. There's nothing real of items here. I said there's some more of the runes on the wall that they can't read. They don't know what that means. They don't see anything. So they start trying to figure out what they need to do next. There's another door leading out, and that door is open, wide open. So they could go through a second door, and if it's much like the last way they came in, it should close from the other side. So that's potentially two doors. If they can get this one open, potentially they could at least close this second one. Now at this point, they start talking about... Oh, hello, Jesse. At this point, the third creature comes into play. Now this one's larger. Uh, it's probably about 9 to 10 feet tall. The very first sure the very first first door did yes not the one that they just came through though and to be honest one door the fear is <laughs> could these things break through it because let's be honest uh, a beholder likely could be blowing these doors right off their hinges they are potentially powerful enough to do that so they start talking about that red orb everything's blinking red as these things are escaping this point they're assuming that's probably bad they're assuming it's some type of alarm or warning system the red ball is blinking as well so what they're thinking is at this point well what if it does something that helps or worse what if it lets everything out you know but their deduction is if you were going to go through all the trouble to lock all these things in here which probably wouldn't be easy to do considering the power level of some of the stuff they have seen. Probably not going to have an open all button just sitting in the middle of the room. At least not to the cells, anyways. So, yes, the very, the very, very first door they came in slammed behind them. The second door was stuck open, if you remember. The second door was already open and they were able to just squeeze through it. And the third one was the mechanism, which, they, which opened up just fine. So they went through three doors. Now, they're trying to get... On the opposite side, it appears to be almost identical. The room inside is the same. 
So the door with the orb is the one that's stuck. The door past that's wide open, but it doesn't look damaged wide open. It just looks like it was left open. So they're checking that out on the other side. It looks like they could probably close it. It would take some strong people, but even with just the humans, enough of them pulling on it, they could probably pull it closed. And then the goal is hopefully that it latches and there is no opening way opening mechanism on the inside of the door. Only on the side they'd be on. So they're talking about what's going on here. While everybody else is still inside fighting this lizard thing, which has backed off some and appears to be yelling out to the flying bat wing thing, which is kind of in a floating pattern ahead. And it's like they're waiting. The big thing I mentioned that they hear come out, uh, it's probably about 12 feet tall. It's giant, although I wouldn't call it a giant. Um, it's definitely a big, big creature, but it is a big Cyclops-like creature. Um, it's also dressed in tattered rags and skins, um, but its body is very tattooed in different images and sigils and such. And it seems to be, it hops out of its little storage area. And it seems a little dizzy at first. They all seem a little disoriented. Odds are they've been in there a while. So, Dandy calls Quan over and has him take her place. He gups up and he starts trying to pull on the... She runs over to Darsh, who's still pushing on the door, and slips through his legs. Mercy and Artemis just happened to see this out of the corner eye and thought, yo, no, but Dandy has run into the room with the rest of the Minotaur. Now, she did not take her hoop back. It's still back in the room. She is just running balls to the wall as fast as she can. And the lizard thing is completely caught unaware. Just sitting here watching these big things, calculating, seems to be crying, yelling out in this guttural language that the bat thing seems to somewhat understand. I mean, they seem to be conversing in some way. He's going back and forth watching them, and all of a sudden this little thing goes right at him. Last minute he reaches down to try to grab it, but she drops and slides right underneath of the thing. And Dandy's fast. She's always been very quick on her feet. Her tumbling score is incredibly high. Sliding underneath, she rolls out of the way as the thing literally drops its body on the ground trying to squish her. She runs out the other side and keeps on going. The bat thing sees this and starts swooping down at Dandy. Dandy makes it to the center dais and kind of dives behind the round pedestal thing that the orb is floating above. While the bat thing is now on the ground trying to get her. Now, that's human-sized, I said. But its arms seem almost twice as long as they should be. They still look like human arms, but they're very long. He's trying to reach around. It doesn't seem very fast on the ground. So he's trying to float up and, and reach around and grab her. Its arms are almost enough that it could. Dandy pulls out a dagger, and each time one pops up, she's stabbing it. Remember, she's got some pretty powerful daggers. They're not just wimpy daggers. She, they do a little stab. They do a decent bit of damage. The thing pulls its hands back, surprised at the pain it got from this little thing. Remember, it's awfully high. Dandy jumps and grabs it, 
and using her full momentum, pulls herself right up on top of the orb. And she reaches down and she grabs it and just spins it as hard as she can. And she doesn't like, like a top, but she grabs it and tries to turn it. And it turns incredibly easy. The warning noise they were hearing starts to go much, much louder. And they begin to hear a hissing noise. Almost like what we would call a hydraulic. It's not a hydraulic, but it's a noise like that. There's no hydraulics here. Just giving you an example. Like a hissing noise, like something is compressing. The bat thing starts looking around wildly. Takes back up to the air. Flies back over by the lizard thing, who now, once again, is trying to charge through the minotaurs. Twice as roughly. Trying to push its way through to get to the door. At one point, Darcy's like, maybe I should let him open the door for us. <laughs> but he doesn't. After all, I said it punches as hard as a minotaur. And Darcy punches, punches a little bit harder than a minotaur. Now, in D&D terms, Darsh is sitting there really making rolls every time. Um, there were a certain amount of rolls he would have to roll over a specific number to make headway on the door, whether he's loosening it or having an effect on it. He didn't know what that number was. He just knew that every so often I told him to run a, roll a 20-sided and tell me. And I was keeping track of that. So it's not a... I just decided to open or close the door. Bad things happen on a whim. A lot of these things they're actually rolling for. Dandy runs back to the other room at this point. The first room. And her first thought was, maybe I could close this door. I'd be stuck on this side, but at least nothing could get out over here. She runs inside, and she stops very quickly, surprised, because she's not the first person in there. Standing there is a figure. It's probably standing eight feet tall, seven feet tall, slightly shorter than a minotaur, but slightly taller than a human. And it's standing there, and it has four arms. But it's wearing what would look almost like cleric robes. And in his hands, it like two of the hands, the top hands, appear to be like turning pages, like it's holding a book, although she sees no book. And it looks up, and it looks at her, and it kind of tilts her head, and it's got four eyes. Regular nose and mouth, but four eyes. It's bald almost completely on top, but it has slightly long hair on the back that appears to be braided. It's translucent. It's not a physical being, but it's definitely whether it's a ghost or a hologram or a shadow or what, she doesn't know. But she stops and she looks at it. And it looks down at her kind of quizzically, like, you shouldn't be here. And once again, it starts flipping through the pages of a book. Uh, as for skin color, it's a good question. Uh, it itself, because it's somewhat ghostly, it's it's just a pale whitish blue at this point. Um, that's it's it's more of a, a shade kind of thing. So that that's hard to tell if that's its actual coloring. It has all a bit of a blue tint to it at this point. Its whole whole thing does. 
Uh, although the robes don't would be a, probably of a lighter color. They could be a white or a gray or a yellow. They're still bluish tint, but they're not like a dark. That would be easy. Looking down at Dandy, it looks and it seems to be flipping its pages a little bit faster. And then it stops and it looks at and it kind of points towards Dandy. And then it looks like it's reading something in a book and it taps. And he closes his hand like he closed the book. And he just nods. And he stops and he turns. And he looks over towards where those chairs are. Remember I said there were some seats in the alcove? And he walks to the middle one. And he sits down. And he fits perfectly inside of it. And he looks to Dandy. And he kind of goes like this. Sounds like like arc like ta-da <laughs> that's the that's well ta-da and then it fades away now back in the main room two more cells have shattered and out of one came not one but three little creatures probably half the size of dandy no more than a foot and a half tall. But they're identical. And they're just jibber-jabbering. They come rushing out. When they land, you can see that their, their little hands, the fingers come to just extreme points. Each of the finger comes to just like almost what looks like a razor tip point. When it, when that, and when they land, their hands hit the floor like they're kind of squatting, almost like a frog. When they're hands hit the floor, it's, it's like a metal on stone sound. It's hard, their fingertips. It looks at Weston at this point, who's doing a lion's share of the lifting. Because anything that's coming through, he starts swinging that hammer, and every time he swings it, it starts glowing again. And they back up. Like, they definitely are being repelled by this. Weston also has his shield, right? It's a two-handed sword, which he normally uses, but he has a shield as well. It's, he, he uses this two-handed sword one-handed half the time, two-handed the other. It's a D&D thing. You can use a two-handed sword one-handed, but you get a negative. Anyways, that's <laughs> how he wields if he has to use his, his shield. And at this point, though, the shield, or the sword was dropped when he grabbed his hammer. He managed to pick up a shield again, but now he's wielding shield and hammer. Um... Jorn managed to grab his sword and has it in his offhand. Well, he's carrying his own hammer because that's what the hammer is what Jorn uses his wheel as well. It's kind of dual wielding the sword because for him it's like a regular sword. It's two-handed for humans, but for Jorn it's like this is okay. The little things come running forward and they're quick. They're kind of going side to side like they're almost like a hopping walk. And they start run, coming around the sides of the big lizard thing, which kind of steps back a bit when they pop up. And they stop, and the one in the middle reaches out like this, and its fingers literally elongate. Like, they just shoot forward, four to five feet long. Weston just manages to get his shield up, but even on the inside of his shield, he can see dent marks. Like, these fingers literally hit against his metal shield strong enough to dent it. Like, almost like uh, hail damage on a hood. Just the tiniest enough to be annoying.
No. It's at this time, Dandy is running back across the pedestal. Back across the, the bridgeways. <clears throat> and as she's coming, she's seeing things starting to blink more and more, starting to, but the red lights are flashing brighter and brighter. That hissing noise is getting louder. She's running. She starts doing basically dandy gym, gymnastics. She had to make several interesting rolls, but she's literally, you know, ro tumbling underneath the flying thing, jumping past the little things, sliding past the big guy. He's doing a lot of, she's having to do a lot of acrobatics to dodge these hits. She's not trying to do damage. She's just trying to get through. She's successful. And again, she runs, slides right through Darsh's legs, where he's like, I'm pushing here, trying to get the door. The door has moved a little more. He could probably, maybe Jorn might be able to slip through. Him and he and Garrick are too big. Weston might, but he's getting, he's, it's moved a little bit more. Quan's in there pulling as hard as he can, and Dandy comes running in. And she just comes in and she runs for the matching set of chairs, and she sits down in the middle one. It just sits there. Mercy and Arnold's like, what are you doing? She's like, shh, I'm sitting. But nothing happens. She stands up, looks at the chair, and kicks it like it's broken. Why is you not working? And she looks around and she goes, she's looking around, she looks around and she goes, Miasha, come here. Miasha's like, what? Come here, quick, come here, come here. Sit in this chair. Why do I have to sit in the chair? Don't question me. Sit in the chair. She looks at Ar Miyasha looks at Armas. Armas like, sit in the chair. Miyasha's like, okay. And she sits down in the chair. And she just sits in the chair and gets comfortable. She's not in there a half a second before she calls out in surprise. She goes, she goes the whole chair's tingling. Everything's tingling. I'm tingling. Like, are you in pain? Do we need to get you out of there? Because no. It's just tingling. Now the reason Dandy called Miyasha is because Dandy sat in that chair and realized she was too little. Other than the Minotaurs, Miyasha's physically the largest person in this room. She's really tall. Even taller than Seamus. So, she's sitting there. As she's sitting there, Quan calls out. He goes, it's moving. And Seamus looks and goes, runs over and sits in another chair. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. But he's like, sitting in chairs does things. And Seamus comes around and sits in a chair. He's like, I'm not tingling. Am I in the wrong chair? And they're like, no, Seamus, I think it's not. He's like, wait. And he gets up and he go gets in another chair. And he keeps moving from chair to chair, trying to see if he can help because he's the next biggest person in the room right now. Uh, but that's not how it works. But he still keeps trying. Everyone's like, uh, I don't think it's helping. Seamus goes, wait, there's another chair. And he gets up and he walks over, to, rushes over to the other chair. He's trying to help. He's worried about his friends, right? But sure enough, Miasha is, she's like, she sees that the orb is glowing a bit brighter and has since she sat down. Because everyone's watching her at this point, right? She's like, I'm tingling. And everybody's looking at her, but she's looking at them. The only one not looking is Quan. And she and Quan, as soon as she starts to feel the thing, she sees the ball get brighter. 
Seamus, Seamus is a smart dude. Asking his intelligence. Seamus is a smart guy in things, right? Like he's military combat. He's really good at that stuff. You know, running businesses, governing that kind of thing and stuff. But you can be really smart and still not have a whole lot of common sense sometimes, especially in a moment like this, you know? But Miyasha saw the ball glowing. Darsh feels the door starting to give way and he calls out to his friends. Well, the ones that are still in there, Weston and them. It's like, pull back, it's opening. They don't know how long it's going to be open. It could slam shut again. So everybody, the Minotaurs start backing up. But as soon as they do, the other things start running for it as well. Darsh steps out of the doorway, now that it's opened a decent enough that they could fit through. But he doesn't step in, he steps out. Jorn is first one through. It's not like he's a coward. He's just, he's the closest. He's the first one through at this point. Remember I said Weston was in the front. Garrick is next. And he stops and looks at Darsh. Darsh looks at him and he's, come on, waves with his head. Garrick nods and goes through. He does what he's, in this situation, he, that's his captain. Darsh's his captain. Garrick's of the, I'm an older man. If one of us must die, I should be the one. You have much life. He's that kind of person. But at the same time, he's like, okay, you told me to go. I'm going to go. So he goes through, it comes down to Weston and Darsh. Weston's kind of right up next to him, and Darsh is standing there with his shield. Jorn still has uh, Weston's sword, by the way. He took it with him. So none of the weapons are on the ground. Everybody has their stuff at this point. And the two and the things are coming closer, and again, the fingers come out, and Darsh pulls up his shield. Now, he's got a dragon hide shield, you remember, right? It was, it's been on his... It's been sitting on the ground next to the door while he's been wedging on it. He just set it down. He snatched it back up. It doesn't dent at all. It's actually stronger than his. And... Uh, they're kind of holding off. The little things are... And they're just trying to block it. And they're taking damage, right? Because the shields, while they're big, don't cover their whole body. And they both, at one point, call in pain because they literally get pierced in the legs by these fingers that shoot through. Now, fortunately, the fingers don't curl. It's not like they do that. But they go in and out. And they don't seem to be able to... They shoot the fingers out, and they come out and come right back in. They don't stay out long, and they wiggle. It's they go out and come back in, and they, it's like there's a bit of a charge-up. They can't just keep doing it super, super fast. So they kind of do... One will do it, and then while it's resting, the next one will do it, and so on and so forth. They're using strategy here. Darsh... Tells Weston to go back through. Weston, being the holy paladin that he is, is ready. <laughs> tells Darsh, "No, you go back in." And it's funny because in the moment, my intention of writing this was to have Weston go in last, just in time. But the young lady who's playing Darsh would not go through that door no matter what I said or did unless Weston went first. Because in this moment, they were completely under the assumption I was going to kill at least one NPC. They were 100% sure I was planning on killing an NPC. Now, I told you guys, I never intend to kill a character. Player character. NPCs, though, sometimes. But they thought it was going to be Weston at this point. Not realizing, not thinking, he has one of these artifacts. I wouldn't have given it to him if I was just going to sacrifice him. <laughs> he has one of the artifacts they need to beat the Emperor. I'm not going to have him leave it in there, but still. 
So sure enough, Weston finally goes through and everything charges Darsh at once. And then that's when the explosion happens. Now when I say it's an explosion, it's an explosion of glass. Almost like of the of, of all the shatterings they've heard is the biggest. It's massive. And with a roar, the beholder comes flying out into the center of the room, looking around with all of its eyes, trying to see what is where, where everything is, right? Because he saw them. He saw them looking through the, the glass. And the beholder was aware of them. And it sees them, and it starts floating over. Now, beholders aren't super fast, but they've got a little bit of speed on them. And it's flying, so it doesn't have to take the stairs. So it starts heading that direction, I'll be honest, even some of the other creatures, like the little things, turn around and jet out of the way. They don't want to be in front of this thing. The lizard thing looks hesitant. Thank you, Goldie. Potential for the sub. (laughs) But uh, even the lizard looks hesitant, but then finally backs up. Darsh is like, well, I'm about to fight a beholder. (laughs) And that's when the hissing gets ten times louder. And Darsh sees something come flying out of every direction. It almost looks like dry water. I want to explain that. It's flying out like water, but it looks like it's dry. You know what I'm saying? Like something would pour out. Like a water hose, but full of powder. Sorry I paused so much. I'm very thirsty today. And um, power just starts coming out in huge amounts. And the little things are the furthest back and they get hit by some of it and they cry out in pain. They're trying to run around and dodging it. The beholder stops for a minute and looks back. Well, with its big eye. The little eyes are still looking at Darsh. And it howls in fury. And its eye begins to glow. Darsh braces himself. And then he's not on his feet anymore. He feels himself being pulled backwards through the door. Literally. Jorn and Garrick have reached through and grabbed the back of his belt... And are pulling him through as hard as they can. At this point, willing to sacrifice his shield, sword, if he should drop them. And he had to roll. And Darsh lost his sword in that fight. It was a pretty good sword. It's like a plus four bastard sword, if I remember correctly. But he managed to hang on to his shield. As he was pulled back through. And as soon as he did, Mercy yells now, and Quan flips the orb the other way, and the door goes flying shut. Now, as soon as the door closes, the sound stops. There's no sound, it's soundproof. They can hear nothing of what's on the other side. 
Darsh takes stock for the first time. And he looks down and he's like, dang it, I lost my sword. But they also come running over to him and they're like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, because he didn't realize he'd taken damage. Because that can happen in the moment. And he looks down and he can see that all along one of his arms, where the powder had hit him and was still on him, all the hair is gone and his skin is like blistering. Really, really badly. And Artemis immediately rushes over and starts casting you know, a healing spell on him. Whatever it is, is incredibly powerful. Because the healing spell, all it does is stop it from getting worse. And she used a big one. It did not heal anything. It just stopped it from getting worse. It's at this moment that Seamus cries out. With everything going on with the monsters and the creatures, everyone was focusing on now on the door. Now that it was working... Artemis turns and sees Miyasha has fallen to the ground. Now, Miyasha could feel it draining her energy from the moment she started to tingle. But she saw that ball glowing and knew that that energy or life or whatever it was that it was pulling from her was making that thing stronger. And so she stayed in the chair no matter how much it hurt. And as soon as she heard the door close, she used what little strength she had left to pull herself off of the chair and hit the ground. Seamus pulled out, because when they run over, she's almost skeletal thin. Face is all drawn in, skin's all shallow. Artemis looks at Darsh, Darsh goes, I'm fine. Take care of her. I mean, his arm's all funky and stuff. He's like, no, her. Artemis begins casting spells as well. Um, This was hard because she wasn't injured, right? There's nothing to heal. So her magic healing spells weren't working on Miyasha at all. Miyasha looked like she was fading. She decided to use her lay on hands. Now lay on hands is an ability that I've given clerics of healing. Uh, Lay on hands once per day. You literally can heal two hit points times your level. You have to be physically touching the thing. It's instantaneous. It's not a spell. It's literally, I'm touching you with a single finger. I just have to poke you, and I heal that much one time a day. So, it never gets more powerful other than for every level. You can do a little bit more. So, she decides to use that ability. Because it has other perks to it. And it seems to have some of an effect. Color comes back a little bit. She can only do one of those a day. Garrick does not have an ability of that nature because he's a cleric of war, and that's just not something they get. But there is one other person in here who has a lay-on-hands ability. 
And that is Weston. The paladin ability. So Weston comes over and does the same thing. Now, Weston is not of the level Artemis is, but he is a paladin. He's almost, you could say, even closer to his god than Artemis is to hers, which is not easy to pull off. But a paladin's about as close as you can get. And his has an even better effect. It definitely, some color comes back more so. And she doesn't no longer look like she, but she's still super thin and still exhausted and she's unconscious. Not knowing what to do at this point. They think the best thing you can do is try to pick her up and keep going and close the second door. Just in case, whatever, all that stuff in there is still alive or whatever and can get through the first door. I don't want to take chances. So Seamus scoops her up. You'll remember they're a thing. Carries her out of the room while everybody else lumbers out as well. Darsh and Garrett grab a hold of the other door and expecting it to be a hard pull. It's not. It's super close. It's easy. And then they hear it latch on that side. You remember it latches. They decide at this point to rest here. Even though it's awfully close to the bad things, they don't want to be stuck in a worse place in case it does come through the door. They'd rather be here and hear something coming through the door so they're ready to prepare it. They're ready to fight it, which is actually a good idea, to be honest with you. Being in a tunnel is a lot not that good, but... Uh, well, they don't know. Everything's inside the central room. Well, they closed, They managed to make it through and close that, that orb door, which is the one with the wheel that turns and hisses and goes in and out. So all the creatures are in that big round room. So, they go ahead and basically make camp there as best they can, listening for anything. But these doors are very thick, as I've said before. They are, um, not a single sound comes through them. So, if, some, if, if anything made it through the first door, they don't hear it. Um... There's no such thing as a shorter long rest in second edition. It's eight hours or nothing. It's <laughs> kind of how it works. There is no shorter long rest. That's relatively new. Second edition, you either got rest or you didn't. If you get interrupted, you get nothing. <laughs> a little, it was a little bit more harsh, I'll say. Second edition was. Um, but over time, as they're sitting there resting, Miyasha starts to, you know, comes to, and while she still feels pretty weak, um, she's able to talk to Artemis, and, you know, explains that, yeah, I knew it was happening, and Artemis chews her out a little bit, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's happier friends, okay. Seamus basically sits up all night watching her, you know, taking care of her, stays next to her in case she, she wants to have a problem or something, he wants to be able to call out, uh, Miyasha, or call out help for Miyasha. Yeah, second edition did not play around. If you did not get your eight hours of rest, you did not get your spells back. That's how that works. Now, sometime, you there are exceptions to that, I will say. If you're like, hey, we're going to leave early, we're going to rest for six hours, you're telling me that. You're not being, your rest is not being interrupted. You could sleep longer, you're choosing to get up early, I'm fine with that. 
I mean, every one of us has had a day where we've stayed up too late and then gotten up too early and still made it through the day. You know what I mean? If you're like, I know I have to get up at 8 o'clock this morning, but I'm definitely going to finish this chapter <laughs> of this video game before I go to sleep. You make that choice. Okay, I'm going to go to bed and get six hours sleep and set an alarm. You're choosing that. That's different. But if you go to sleep and then suddenly you're attacked by something, then your rest is broken. Unless you kill it quick and get back to sleep, you're probably in trouble. Yes. So. Really, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff. Uh, several of the, the Minotaurs all had injuries. Weston had injuries, and so did Darsh. Um, and Artemis manages to heal most of them up with the healing spells she has. Other than Darsh's arm, where the powder had hit it, um, it was healed... Uh, where it wasn't getting worse, but it still looked funky. The hair was all gone, from almost from his shoulder down to his wrist on the outside of one of his arms, and the skin was all gnarly. Didn't know if it would ever heal back or not. But it was what it was. <laughs> That's true, Lex. Mosquito ruins your day. <laughs> Bear with me a second while I turn my fan on and getting a little toasty. All this epic storytelling. I'm just kidding. So, if the fan is louder, you can hear it. Tell me. I'll turn it back off. Um, so, uh, the uh, they rest, but throughout the night, not a, not a sound is heard. And Dandy and Quan and the elves are listening. Listening carefully. Now, you'll remember that there's the two B.A., Elves, right? Two badass elves that were the Templars of Time that are with them. They and Lucas got Artemis through the door like first. <laughs> you know, like there was a there was no doubt about that. Like they're like, you have no choice. You are going through this door. So they're all in there, but again, they were trying to keep Artemis back and help where they could. But the next day they awaken. Miasha is feeling well enough to walk, although slow, so it does dampen their progress and they have to rest more often. But they decide they are going to keep moving on. Quan legs a bit behind, so that way if something he can maybe give out a warning. So he keeps them in eyesight, if you will. Torchlight. He has a torch. He's human. Uh, he sees their light ahead while still watching behind. At the same time, Dandy's going the same distance ahead, looking for any issues or problems there. Now, this tunnel is much longer than the last one. It takes them almost another day and a half to get through it. They have to camp again. By the end of this point, Miyasha's feeling much like her old self, though not perfect. They come across another door. Now, this one is also open. When they go inside of this one, it's the first time they see signs of trouble in here. So, they get inside, and this, there are signs of battle. Thank you. The signs of battle. Probably pieces of broken weapons on the ground, maybe even armor. 
no real bones at this point. Some of the armor is still there. But anything that was cloth or leather has long since faded away. But checking some of the armor and picking it up, it's easy to see that it's too big for a human, but too small for a minotaur. And curiously enough, in several of the places where they find busted armor like chest pieces or arm guards, they find not two sets of arm guards, or not two arm guards, but four, two pairs with each body. Dandy, of course, has shared the knowledge that she of what she saw in there. Whether or not she saw something that was dead or alive or a recording or anything, whatever it was seemed to know she was there and reacted to her specifically. It, it did not have any like type of emotion on its face. It didn't look like it was angry or upset or even happy to see her. It had no emotion whatsoever. It just directed her to the chair. Entering in this chamber, there's another matching door on the other side, and it is closed. Now, the outside, the very outside door is the one door that they can somewhat open from the inside. It's not easy, because it's clearly meant to be open from the outside, but they are able to open it up. With the Minotaur's strength, they're able to pull it open. And immediately are hit by a blast of cold. I told you they're in mountains. Looking out, they can see that they're high within the mountains. Not like mountaintops going to fall off and die kind of thing, but it's, it's you know, clearly high in the mountains. There's paths and trails, and there's another one of those square roads on this side. Square-edged, 90-degree cuts in the rock. Everyone puts on their warm and or their, you know, clothes for colder weather, because they did pack for these things. They're going through mountains. There was ex the expectation this could happen. Everybody gets on their booties and their stuff to stay warm. And they s finally make their way out into the storm. It's a minor snowstorm, nothing major. And the Minotaurs close the door behind them, hoping that if anything is still alive in there, it stays stuck in there. Maybe one day we'll know. So, that was fun. It takes them five days to finally start to come out of the mountains. They've been coming down for a while now and can finally, ahead in the distance, see flatter lands ahead. The road that they're on, that they were on, stopped a while ago. Just stopped in the middle of space. Like, like, I mean, like, it was road, 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 now it's just rocks. In what would very traditionally be viewed as a merge world's line. Merge line is what we refer to them by, where one world meets another. Uh, and this area, the mountains, very quickly became less, less tough to handle. It wasn't as cold. Still some, but it was more of a, instead of a cold, wintry area, it was more of a chill due to height. You know what I mean? Top, snow on the top of mountains, even in the warm weather. 
they continue making their way down. And all the distance that they've gone, they've been traveling a couple of weeks at this point, right? They believe that they've now entered, if, if their maps are any what accurate, and the uh, calculations of how long they were in the tunnels and direction-wise and such, if all is planned, they believe that they are just a day's travel from entering into the north section of Oramon. traveling and finally out of the mountains they're dressed back in their regular clothing uh, the knights of serenity and things of that nature are not wearing their serenity tabards at this point they're not wearing anything that really marks them as serenity other than just the basic make of their gear some of their armor is a specific design to serenity that mercy had a hand in designing um, but they're not wearing any like big tabards that would say hey we belong to an enemy faction if you will. The only one who's wearing anything faction-wise would be Weston, who's dressed as a paladin of the light. There's no... Or of, of truth, I'm sorry. There's no allusion to that. And, of course, the clerics are the clerics. You know, they, they look like they're wearing the cleric colors they should. Because they have what? We've got three clerics here, right? Let me check. Yes, we have Artemis, we have Garrick, and we have Miasha. The mages are dressed like mages. Nothing special there. Although you remember, mages not very well tolerated in Ormon. That could be a problem. Hello, Sarah Jones. <laughs> well, I appreciate you stopping by for the story. <laughs> so as they, they finally break out of the mountains in the warmer weather... They do their best to try to get their location. It's not easy. Merge Worlds is not easy to maneuver. But fortunately, uh, Darsh has learned a little bit of it. Because, uh, again, being on the ocean, the ships, more than anyone else, have had to be uh, mapping the new way the stars work for navigation purposes. Um, in some ways, it's actually even better. Because the stars don't move. Stars don't move anymore. They stay in one place all night. It makes it really easy to say, okay, I have to go towards that star. <laughs> Home is that way. It's actually easier to navigate in many ways. But they begin traveling southwest. Now, they travel for a good week out of the mountains in this warmer weather. And it's, I would say it's like a early spring type of weather at this point where they're at. You know, it's a little chill at nights, but, you know, relatively comfortable throughout the day. Breeze occasionally, you put on a light jacket. Unless you're a minotaur. And you're born with a light jacket. Just want to play something. Well, I appreciate that, Sarah. Thank you. Hopefully you enjoy it. <laughs> There's a lot of content there. <laughs> they, uh... Traveling southwest for, like, another week. Before they finally see signs of civilization. Or former civilization. They come across what was clearly a farmstead. Uh, the house is in poor repair. The fields have nothing particularly growing. And by that I mean, if you've ever been to a farm that used to be a farm, you'll see that there's crops in the field, but they weren't planted. You know what I mean? It's like leftover seeds from the year before. Something's regrown. They're not properly planted 
for maximum or optimization. It's just what happened to grow wild out of what was there. Um, and from the looks of it, it's very possible that um, it's been that way for a while. I mean, it doesn't look like these fields have been worked in a while. Everything's growing pretty wildly. Um, so. They're still very careful. They come up to the house and they check it. And the roof is half caved in. No one's lived in here for a while. Um, they've seen a couple wild animals like deer and such around. So they're like, okay, at least hunting is possible in this area to help replenish some of their food supplies. They've been going through quite a bit. There's a lot of them. And they've been in an area where you weren't getting any food in the top of the mountains. So there has been a little bit of hunting and such and, and taking a little bit longer at camp each night to prepare foods. If, there's, if they find water, sometimes they'll stop to fish. They don't want to break into those pickled fish unless it's an emergency. Those are emergency pickled fish. They brought two barrels this time, remember. It's emergency pickled fish. Don't eat those just all willy-nilly. So, they have been restocking some food, smoking this, not smoking, but drying it as best they can overnight. Eating it instead of their, uh, you know, a lot of the rations they have in the chest of holding are long-term rations. You know, breads and meats, things that have already been dried that'll last a long time. So, the, they try to eat, live on the fresh stuff as much as possible and keep that stuff ready to go. And they have no idea what type of trains they're going to be traveling through or how long it's going to take. The scene of the farmstead happens several times over the next day and a half. They come across what was clearly a place that was lived in, but has been left empty at least the last few years. They find no tracks of any intelligent creatures. The occasional wild animal kind of thing. So it comes as a surprise... When finally in the distance, they see another homestead, but this one has smoke rising from its chimney. Now it's early afternoon. It's getting not late, late at all. It's still early afternoon, but it's they're looking up there and they see this smoke and they're like, okay, well, it's a small farmstead, potentially one or two bedrooms, probably not an army in there, and there's us. Way scarier. At the same time, they don't want to scare anybody. But they're not really fearing a trap in this situation. Still, they think it's best if maybe the Minotaur hang back. I'm sure you could imagine why. And they decide to get a group together to go uh, and see if they can get some information about maybe where they are. Uh... Do these people consider themselves part of Oromon? Do they not? So they have to choose who's going to go. And Mercy and Artemis both are going to go. Dandy, much to her unhappiness, is left behind. They also don't want them, these poor people to lose half the stuff they own. Um, and they're going to take... Uh, who was the other one? Uh, it was Edwin, the wizard. On the off chance, something looks fishy magically. And uh, Quan comes as the, as the other physical person. Uh, they always take somebody. Oh, and Lucas. Lucas would never let her go by herself. So Lucas would have had to have been there. Lucas, dressed in his armor, not wearing the tabard of, the of, of, 
of the Templar that he is, but still walking next to a clear, obvious cleric of healing. Like, there's no allusions to what she is. Something I talked about with my players today. It is almost an unspoken rule that a cleric will not dress up like another cleric. The cleric of healing is not going to dress up as a cleric of the dead. Or a cleric of disease, even for sneaking in reasons. It's just a disrespect to your god. There's only one god that would be okay with that. And that would be Pandora, the goddess of lies and deception. She would be fine with that. Oddly enough. So, our group moves forward. Now, knowing that they're in Ormond, which is, well, they believe they're in Ormond, a place where women are treated like second-class citizens, almost like property. At first, they, they decide they're going to let Quan and Edwin knock on the door. Or, you know, the equivalent. As they're approaching, people come out of the house. They see them coming. It's not like they get right up to the door and knock and nobody noticed. But some dogs start barking. Probably. But I'm, yeah, it was dogs that start barking. We'll let them know. And a man and a, two older boys, probably in their late teens, come out of the house. Now, they are armed with, you know, swords. Although, immediately, Mercy can see these people have never fought with a sword. These people are not holding those swords correctly to actually be damaged to anyone but themselves. But Darsh and the rest of them are ways back. There's some trees. They're hiding in the woods. They don't want to spook these people. Minotaurs especially. And people have their weapons ready, but stop and lower them very quickly once they see Artemis. And they begin to apologize. They do speak the common tongue. They apologize for drawing weapons, but it's very, very rare they see any people out this far. And, uh, once in a while, they'll have to worry about a couple goblins or something through the area, but they're quite surprised to see this group. A cleric, an elven cleric, of all things. And they invite them into their home. Which they accept. They enter into the hope, and they start talking to this family, and this family says that they live on the very edges at this point of what would be considered Oromon. They don't ask questions why an Elven Cleric's coming through. Um, but, you know, Artemis and, and Mercy have a bit of a story that they're traveling through these lands for whatever reason. They had a story that they'd concocted. I don't remember the specific details, but they, they and their uh, allies were traveling through and saw the smoke from their fire and first one they, uh, folks they'd seen in a while and thought they'd stop and say hello. Quan and Lucas and, and a mage, Edwin on top of that. Definitely an interesting party to come marching through Ormon. But they don't seem as confused or frustrated by it. Or, or like, ooh, you're ladies, you're an elf, you're a cleric, you're a mage. Like, you know, magic is a no-no in Ormon. And Mercy asks, asks about that. Says, you know, you, you don't seem too 
shocked to see a cleric of healing. It's our understanding that Oramon worships one goddess only. The farmer seems a little nervous for a moment. He says, it's true that the main religion of Oramon is that of Pandora, but uh, there are still many of those who respect the old gods and who, uh, who uh, you know, still worship them. He says that they live the first. They, at this point, they they've been living out here. This is his father's land. So he's lived a long time, but the crops really won't grow. They're barely making enough to live on, and they've been trying to stay as long as they could. But they're going to have to probably move closer to the empire as well. Uh, after the merge, the land out here just stopped growing like it did. Um, most of their neighbors and such have already left and moved southwestern towards the emperor, either to get help from the empire or, or find work or, or better land. But this land used to be very prosperous. Although they even then they were on the very edges of what was considered Oramon's lands. He said, what people did not travel uh, southwest, uh, plague and starvation killed most of the rest. Their land still has been a little bit okay. They've been able to get by, just their small family, but they've been out here, and these are the first people they've probably seen in a year. There was absolutely no help from the Empire after the merge. These few farms out here were of little value to the Empire. So there was not much help from them. Again, you can imagine after the merge, even an Empire powerful one probably has to still get its stock and figure out what's going on. They advise that the closest town to them that they have gone to once or twice in the last year or so is a town named Helen. H-E-L-L-U-N. Helen. And it's, it's, about, it's, a, uh, it's about a week travel. Southwest, more west than south. Um, they tried to take crops and sold them there. And what little they had actually... Uh, Succeeded. Uh, don't know what dragonborn is. That the half dragon people? No, those don't exist. I can't stand those. No, those those don't exist as a playable character in second edition. Um, so they say Helen is the closest town, and while it used to be a kind of a, a central hub for markets and such, immediately after the merge, a great wave of water came from the north ripping through the lands right next to it tearing apart homes and crops and fields and when it was done a great river was there I mean a huge river like a you'd need a boat in a day to travel across it massive wave of water the father's like, you know, we've I've been there, I've seen it. It's not pretty. The town now lives, what, what people still there live on, mostly on fishing, though they don't leave the shores. They don't go very far. They're, they've, uh, they speak of dangerous things in the water. So they try not to go too far out from the shore. Um, but yeah, supposedly the, this river marched, killed thousands of people across 100 miles from what he's heard rumors of. There's some pleasantries. They hang out. Artemis, you know, 
heals an ingrown toenail, whatever, you know, people need there. She always, you know, are you okay? Is everybody sick? You a plague? Well, my wife has a cough. Bring her over here. Let me check her. You know, that kind of thing. Doing her good deeds, because that's the type of person Artemis is. Well, with this information, they, they thank the farmer and say they definitely won't, don't want to uh, stay and take up more of their time. Because they're like, would you want something to eat? And, and they can tell these people don't have much. They're like, no, we're fine. We, we, we have uh, some rations to get us through. We appreciate the offer, though. You can tell the little bit of relief in the father's eyes when they say no. He's like, oh, thank goodness. We don't have that much food, you know? As they're about to leave, Mercy decides to ask a question. He's like, may I, may I ask you an, an, an odd question? The farmer's like, sure, go right ahead. She goes, have you ever heard of a tower or a castle or a keep? A place in Oramon where gods are worshipped. Almost like a super temple, I guess you could call it. You know, a place where, the, you know, the gods would, 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 would central people could go to, to uh, worship. And he's like, sure, everybody knows about that. And Mercy's like, wait, excuse me? She, yeah, everybody knows about that place. And she's like, would you, would you mind telling us about it? He's like, well, it's more legend than anything else. I mean, everybody's heard it. So supposedly a thousand miles to the south, or to the, to the west, I'm sorry. Uh, legend says that stands a tower of the gods, one of the greatest achievements of Oramon's history. Said to have been built on neutral holy ground, and that all gods were worshipped there. And that priests who worshipped these gods would uh, travel there to commune, uh, to you know, seek wisdom and such from these gods. And it was, a, it was a place where all aligned gods and their clerics were welcome. Supposedly a thousand years ago, the emperor of Oromon at that time, a emperor Shaven Sunspear, sorry, Shavan, Shavan Sunspear, attempted to take control of the power of the, of the tower to use its power as for his own. In anger, the gods unleashed a great beast upon his army, slaying them all. And it was at this time that the gods hid the tower from mortal eyes, and only one chosen by the gods could ever find it. Supposedly, it's been lost ever since. But that's just a fable. A children's tale. No one really believes that. Mercy and Artemis thank the people for their assistance and for sharing their knowledge. And leave. Bug wrote. <laughs> Making their way back up into the trees, they make sure they're, they're well out of eyesight before they you know, run and tell everybody else what happened. Gives this information. Only one chosen from the gods, that, or chosen by the gods. That adds some frustration and uh, concern to our heroes, because they're like, do we count? Tobias couldn't go there. Why? It was hidden from him, too. Here, clearly, he wasn't one of the chosen in that situation. Are, are any of us? Are we? Am I? Are you? Something that was discussed at great length over their travels moving forward.
But if it's true what they were told, and there's a great river to the west, then they're going to have to find a way to cross it. And so they feel their best bets to head to this town of Helen and see if they can book passage or, you know, rent a boat or whatever the case may be to see about getting across. So they decide to travel that way. As I mentioned, it takes about a week to get there. In this time, uh, food gathering is slim. Not impossible, uh, but slim. They do make just enough to get by, uh, that they only have to tap into their rations a little bit. Uh, But there's obviously not a lot of wildlife in this area. And while they find river occasionally, the fish that are in them, most of them are too small to eat. I'm sorry, I'm yawning. (laughs) Most of them are... Way too small to eat. There's little minnows and such. I mean, you know, in a pinch they could eat them. I'm just saying. Darsh would need bowls of them. Preferably baked into a pie. So, as they're traveling towards this town, uh, they don't run into any other people for quite a while. As they get closer to it, within a day's travel, they start to see a few more farmsteads that seem to have very mediocre farms. The crops aren't very high, but they're growing somewhat. Um, the ground here is a little bit more fertile, very likely because they're closer to a water source. But they carry on. And they finally come across the road. <clears throat> the farmsteads. It's an old dirt road that's clearly not been upkept in a long time. And happy to at least have some type of a path to walk on, because it's hard walking through just grass and hills and mountains. Especially when you're really big. Or you're someone like Miyasha, who hasn't had to do this in years. Some of these guys travel a lot. Some of these folks do not. So it's harder on some of them, and they would probably be making greater time had they not brought a few of these people. But Magnus and Edwin and Miyasha, and is there anybody else in here? Mm. That's probably most of them. <laughs> are just not used to this. So they do set the pace a little bit. So they can see the village. And the village was always kind of on a hill. If that helps a little bit. The village was on relatively high ground that was overlooking a great valley where there were plentiful farms and things of that nature. It was only the fact that it was up on that high ground that the village managed to survive the flood that came through. Um, The water now, I mean, it's probably about a quarter mile from the town, maybe a half mile. And it's, there's land going down to it, but they learned very soon very soon is that the water was almost to the village's edge. <clears throat> but then after it all, it did recede some. Sometimes a little worse, depending on the season. As they approach the town, they can see the river on the, on the past it. And it, it is, in fact, it looks more like an ocean. Like to Darsh, goes, I can't see the other side of it. If this is a river, it's huge. And the water is flowing very quickly. That's another thing that Darsh notices. He's like, that has a, that has a very strong current. That would not be easy to sail across. In a in a, in the type of small vessels that he can see that are uh, docked, the small docking area close to it. The boats themselves are definitely small. 
uh, and look relatively new, even from this distance. This is something that Darsh is good at. Even from this distance, you can tell they're relatively new. Could be more than just a few years old. This, much like has happened on Merge Worlds, this is a city that's had to deal with a change of profession. All the crops and such gone, now it's a fishing village. and People are just trying to survive. Now this is a group of 18 people marching down the road. There are three minotaurs in this group, some really tall humans, some elves, some mages, some clerics, and scariest of all, a kender. So this is uh, not the type of group of people anybody's normally going to see walking down the road. But in this situation, they decide to be quite open about it. They're pretty far north from what they've learned of Oromon. And Oromon did not seem to have a lot of uh, care about the recent towns they saw, the homesteads. So the hope is that there's not a large representation of them here. The second of all, they're going to need a boat. And that thing is way too wide. No one's swimming across that. And there's no way they can get a boat and get on the boat without people noticing them. So being open about it is going to be the easiest route. Sure enough, people freak out a bit at the sight of the group walking in. A bell clangs, as only a bell can. And the town militia gathers up. Now there's a good 30, 40 guys. I've gathered up. These guys have a bit of training. Looking at these guys, these guys would die slower than most people. Mercy looks at She goes, we would take them all very quickly. Darsh would probably take out five in the first minute, but... They might, get, they might do some damage. They might get some hits in. These people know a little bit of what they're doing, but they're not obviously military folks. These are not people that have been spent a lot of time living the military life. And they're even more surprised when it's Darsh and Mercy that walk forward as representatives of their group. They, the classic, listen, we're not here for problems. We're just heading this direction. We're looking for a way to cross the river. The captain's like, looks at them and goes, he goes, there's not a boat here in this town that would hold all of you. Darsh has mentioned that himself, looking around at the boats. He's like, we would need two or three of these to get ourselves across. These are small fishing boats. There's no large boats here. The guy, the, the, the speaker of the town, whoever's speaking to them, who is representing them right now, states that if they continue heading south, about two weeks' time, the river thins out and calms down, and there's, at that point, been some construction to a bridge uh, that will cross at that point, at, a, at the thinnest point of the river. Built by the military, and it's now how people can get across up there. He goes, you're better off going down there. Well, our heroes don't want that. The last thing they want to do is cross a bridge that was just built by the military. Because that means there might be more military around there, and they don't need that. Plus, if, the, if Ormond did put that kind of money into a bridge, they're not going to leave it unmanned. That's just common sense. So Mercy says, okay then. How many boats do you got? <laughs> They're like, excuse me? I said, we'll buy them. We'll buy 
He goes, looks at your boats, looks down at the boats, goes, looks like we'd need three of them. We'll buy three of them. You have people here? We're going to offer to buy them. And the guy's like, well, I don't own them. I mean, they're individually owned, but I don't know if people want to sell, just sell their boat. How much are you offering? <laughs> he seems a little... And she goes, more than they're worth. Much more than they're worth. She goes, what don't... And she starts, you know, haggling and some talk with this guy. And he goes, we'll, do, we'll give you this much for three boats. And their eyes are bugged out. They're like, first of all, I don't know, looking, even if you all have that much money in your pockets, I don't know where you're going to pull that much money out of, because it's in a chest of holding. And they always carry a small fortune, because you never know when things like this pop up. Like, we have the coin. We will pay you for the boats. The money we give you, you'll be able to buy three boats apiece. Or at least to build it, anyways. Shut up and take my money. Yeah. <laughs> very, very accurate, Lex. <laughs> And they're like, all right, sure, we'll do that. He goes, he goes well, we'll send the offer out, see if anybody wants to take it. The amount of money they offered, it's almost immediately taken. In fact, there's, they tried to sell more. And they're like, no, no, we just need three, thank you. And Darsh basically goes down, looks at the boats, and picks out the three he wants. Uh, he, again, they're small boats. They're going to hold maybe eight of them apiece, six to eight at most. Um, he's like... It's not, you know, they're, they're built built pretty well, but once they get into deeper waters, it's not going to be, uh, if, if a storm comes through, they're going to be in some trouble, but it's all they've got. The townsfolk at this point are giddy. They're like, you want anything else while you're here? Like, literally. And at that point, try to sell them people. Do you need somebody to row for you? Do you need a servant? Do you need a manservant? You remember... That in Oromon, slavery is legal. Not something that Darsh and Mercy are okay with. But they try to play nice, like, no, thank you. We don't need any more people. As, like you said, we're going to be hard pressed to fit in these boats. Like, one boat's going to have three Minotaur in it. I mean, just the three of them alone are probably going to fill a boat. At least trying to put eight in another boat, seven in another boat. You know what I mean? Some of those humans are big too. Miasha and Seamus, right? So like, we'd be hard hard pressed to fit anybody else in there. And they're like, okay, that's legit. We get that. We get that. Do you need supplies? And at that point, Mercy, knowing how much supplies they have in the chest of holding, buys more anyways. At this point, they're like, hey, this is an opportunity to get in good with these people. Right now, they're happy with us. Maybe we can get a little bit more information. And sure enough, they start, you know, they decide they're going to spend the night before they travel on. The inn's happy to hear this. The people have got some money in their pockets. They hit the one or two small stores that are here. They buy some stuff they really don't need. Um, you know, no, they don't whip out the chest of holding, per se, but they uh, they manage to give the money in such a conspicuous way that people don't know they have a chest of holding. Which isn't hard when you set a chest down, you know, behind three minotaur. It's hard to see past that. They're big guys. Quickly, Dandy sneaks down and comes up with a few bags of gold. Here you are. So they learn that on the other side of the river is another town named Copper Ridge, known for its copper mining. I know what you're thinking. 
Where did they come up with that name? It's ingenious, really. But Copper Ridge is a small town that they say is in even worse shape than they are. Because you cannot mine in a swamp. The water that raised was not enough to wipe out the town, but a lot of the surrounding area was taken up by it. And even though it was higher ground there, it was low enough, just enough that it's basically a big swamp at this point. And a lot of the land that was north of the city is a swamp that wasn't there to begin with. Merge world, right? But they're kind of locked between the river and a great swamp. There's not a lot of people there. Again, much like here and everywhere else, most people have moved south closer to the capital. Uh, where there's more protection and things of that nature. Okay, my friend, people have witch farms. <laughs> right, witch farms. It's funny. <laughs> I like that, Lex. So they spend the night, um, and they're treating people to drinks. They're letting the coin flow. They have it. Again, these guys are, are pretty wealthy at this point. Like, horrendously. I mean, they're kings and queens, basically. Um, they have dragon hordes in a chest of holding. <laughs> so they they have had dragon hordes in a chest of holding, now that I think about it. <laughs> but <laughs> they, they're letting the money flow. These are wealthy people. Everybody here loves these guys. And it doesn't even seem to bother them that, the, you know, women talk like men, if you know what I mean. Like, they're, they're treated as equals by these guys. They don't disrespect any of them. Because, again, uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, the women here look like they would thump a skull if somebody tried. Mercy, hands down every second of the day, has that look of, hi, I'm in a good mood. But she has that resting bitch face of, I will kill you if you look at me wrong. Mercy has that. She Even when she's happy, she looks like she might kill you. Um, and everybody's always enchanted by Artemis. It's like, ooh, we've never seen an elf before. Or, it's been so long to be an elf. And Cleric of Healing, it's like, we only worship Pandora. But I got this really sore knee. Do you have a healing spell? You, you know, I mean, it's that kind of thing. Um, the further away you get from a capital city where the rules are enforced, the little more lax they get for those kind of things. They spend the night. Um, there aren't enough rooms for them, so they uh, camp some outside. Some take rooms. Uh, some folks even offer to camp outside to rent them their rooms, which is, something is taken advantage of. They haven't had a good night's sleep in a while. Like a bed rest sleep. Um, and they get to do so. And best best of all, they have a fairly good supply of alcohol. Uh, so Mercy, Darsh, and the other Minotaurs and her knights uh, do some drinking. Not a lot, by my standards, but by their standards, uh, it's hardly any. By my standards, it was probably a lot. Um, but they didn't get for snickered. We all know Mercy and Darsh like to have a drink off now and again. This is not the time. The next morning comes, they rise, they go back to their boats, they take their goods. The town, many of the townsfolk, coming to wish them a fond to do. Some of these boat owners, instead of going out fishing today, hoping to catch a, some fish to sell so they could buy dinner, now have small fortunes of their own. They look into different lines of work. This may be the money they need to finally move south, or whatever the case may be, you know. Uh, buy land, whatever that. But our heroes gather on the boats, and the way they distribute themselves are much like I said. Darsh, Garrick, and Jorn are in one boat. At first they thought about distributing the Minotaurs, but in case of anything issue happening, they decided not to. 
Now, on one of the sh boats, Nathalian is basically kind of taking control. Uh, again, like Jorn and Darst the, and Garrick, there they live on the boat. They live on the ocean. They know this. Um, the last one is going to be uh, Seamus, Miasha, and some of the smaller folks. They kind of mix and match them. Uh, Seamus has a boat on Lake Serenity. It's a small boat. He doesn't know, he, so he's not like professional when it comes to boating, but he has a little bit of boating skill. So as long as he stays close to Darsh, Darsh walks him through most of it. And they basically keep a rope tied between the boats, ready to cut at any moment should there be a problem. But they do keep the boats tied together in case the current starts to pull one further away than the other. Um, but Seamus and Miyasha are in the boat. Now Weston and... Um, was it Weston, Quan, and Lucas are in a boat with Artemis and Mercy. Because uh, for physical strength, they're three, probably the next strongest. And their goal is to, basically, they're doing the rowing. They're sailboats, but there's also s rowing involved. This is very current heavy. And these boats really weren't intended to go across the river. Their owners ensured them that they've done it before, uh, but they do it very sparingly because they did warn them of scary things in the water. When asked what those scary things are, they, they, they really have anything specific. Uh, you know, sea dragons, uh, maybe a dragon turtle. Uh, you, you know, all they know is they see, they've seen big things, Loch Ness monsters. They've seen big things below the waves, and sometimes boats go missing, although that could be the current. But they believe it's something in the water. But everybody has a tale of, well, I was out there one morning and I saw a fin the size of my sail off the starboard. You know, it's, everybody has their thing. Is it true or not? Darsh, Mercy, Artemis, and Dandy chat, and they're like, well, we're not going to take chances, so we're going to stay relatively close to each other. From what information they receive, it's probably going to take almost a full day to cross this river, if the wind stays good and they row. Uh, day, day and a half tops. They'd they, they're leaving early morning. They'd like to be across before night, uh, but it's just going to depend on how well the wind holds. And so they take off. Guess what? The wind did not hold. They got out there, and the current became rather a challenge, and there was almost constantly rowing just to try to stay together. Um, and they had to start switching off quite regularly because it's just exhausting for anybody who was rowing. It's at this point that Darsh wished he had put a minotaur in each boat, but he did not. And it's too late to change in the middle of the water. Nobody, they're not jumping in the water. It's too deep, too quickly, and too fast. So it takes them almost a day, a full day and a half. They end up at night. The river's still moving right quickly. So someone has to stay up and keep it going. But the wind actually picked up a little bit at the night, which was nice. They were able to kind of keep, uh, not have to row quite as hard. And having the boats tied together, they pulled them much closer together at that point at night. So that way they could pretty much just see each other all the time. Someone always stayed on guard. Although in the middle of the night... There was a loud splash. No one fell in the water. But there's concerns that maybe it was a big sea turtle or something. They're not sure. It is the next morning, early, early, early day, before noon, when they finally can see sight of land on the other side. Now, they don't see the town. The town was supposed to be directly across. But the current has probably pulled them quite a bit south. And they realized that. That was something they were figuring might happen.
and they just finally can see the shore. Finally going to get some rest from all this paddling. When about that time, of course it's at that point that they had to fight something. The creature that comes out of the water is probably estimating from what the parts they can see of it 50 feet long. It looks clearly like a sea serpent. Why? Because it is a sea serpent. It is, in fact, a sea serpent. I had three potential things that they'd have to face in the water, and that's the one I rolled. Because even as a DM, sometimes I like to surprise myself with what they're going to fight, right? Random encounter. I like a random encounter. I keep my own personal random encounter charts. Um, if you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons, most DMs will have a random encounter chart. Every so often you roll it to see what they come across. I make my own. Some people do it other ways. Um, I like to have my own, and I custom them based on the type of terrain they're going to be going through. So, they had to fight a sea serpent. Now, if you'll remember, there are two people here better suited to fight in combat in water. One of them is Darsh. Darsh has his boots of charging and a ring of water walking. Minotaur Jesus, basically, here. Oh, why? Thank you very much. I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> Darsh... I should say this, for those folks of you who are new watching or listening to the story for the first time, I haven't mentioned this in a few episodes, and I apologize. Um, but on my website, OnlyDraven.com, there's a link at the top that says Characters. If you click that, you'll find Hero Forge minis that I've painted on their websites. I didn't really paint them. I created them of many of the different characters that I'm mentioning. So if you'd like to see what some of these characters look like, how they're dressed and such... Um, you can always follow along on the website. There's going to be a lot of characters there you may not know from earlier stories and such, uh, but it's a great way to familiarize yourself with some of the characters. Uh, and if you have any questions about that, hit me up, either here or in the Discord channel. Uh, but yes, if you would like to see what some of these folks look like, you can see that on my website, omnidraven.com. I need to start mentioning that at the beginning of the stream for folks who may be listening for the first time. Sea Serpent. So Darsh has a ring of water walking and boots of charging. The boots of charging are a magical item that I created. Ring of Water Walking is a traditional Dungeons & Dragons item. So he can jump off the boat and walk on water. And he can charge pretty quickly. Now, if he falls in the water, he can only stand on the water. Something knocks him backwards and he falls on his butt. He doesn't hit the, like it's the ground. He goes in the water. And he has to get on dry land to step back on the water. You can't just Stick your foot above and pull yourself up. It doesn't work that way. Once you're in the water, the boots or the the ring does not work until you can step off a dry thing onto the top of the water again. Um, but while you're walking on the water, even things like the current and such don't affect you. You're, you're literally it's to you. It's like standing on a solid object. Mercy has a ring of free action. Ring of free action is a thing that lets you move in water without the negatives of water. So if she swings her weapon, you know, if you're underwater, you move your hand, it goes really slow. Uh, for her, it doesn't have that effect. 
Uh, Ring of Free Action also works against things like web spells and things that would, uh, roots, things that would tie you up. Uh, it allows you to pass through a lot of that stuff without problems. Uh, it's, she wears that on one hand, she wears the ring on her other hand, that summons her morning star. So she's, well, she's, she has no problem jumping in the water and smacking at something. Because if she loses her weapon, she can just teleport it back to her hand. She can't breathe underwater, neither could Darsh. Neither of them have water breathing at this point. But sure enough, at the first sight, Darsh hops out of the boat and goes running at the thing. Which, the sea serpent itself is of animal intelligence. It's not sentient in the way that it's making, you know, plots against them or it's shocked. But this thing comes running at it. They're like, it's like, oh, I was going to eat this boat, but I guess I'll eat this thing first. And they roll for some initiative. And combat begins. The combat itself... Relatively short. Relatively short. Because it turns out that Darsh walking on water, Mercy swimming and hitting the thing, two mages and a Nathalian uh, can do a lot of damage to a sea serpent very quickly. Very quickly. More so than I expected. Which is always a good thing. Sometimes it's like, ooh, big scary serpent. Not to us. And they blew that thing up in just a few rounds. Like, it it was chunks. They did some serious damage to that thing. I was impressed. This is the uh, most powerful group I'd put together at this point. Uh, other than the actual final battle with Nylat. Uh, this is probably the most powerful group that, that put together. So... They destroy the thing. One of the boats takes a little bit of damage. It's not sinking, but it definitely... It was, uh, if I remember, it was the sail or something got busted where it couldn't sail anymore, so they had to row it. Uh, so Darsh, who managed to stay on top of the water the whole fight, walked over and got in that boat. That was going to be... That was a boat that was a little heavy. Um, but I think, if I remember correctly, Dandy was on that boat... And they got close enough that she was over to hop over to help offset that a little bit. Although it's really not a comparison. The boat rowed low, but Darsh was able to, to row it a little bit better than... I think it was Nathalian's boat. So they uh, start making their way to shore again. This big floating corpse behind them in the water. I'll tell you, just for fun, the other two things they could have fought was a giant catfish or a zombie shark. But they got the sea serpent. Just telling you. Just telling you. They finally make it to shore. The boats themselves, they beach. They've got no use for them again at this point. But they beach and the Minotaurs do their very best to keep pulling them up on shore. Uh, so that way, should somebody come across them later, they might be salvaged. Someone's like, ooh, free boat. It doesn't hurt them. Maybe someone can use them, right? Wyatt says, the steam keeps freezing for me. Is anybody else having a problem with the stream freezing? I'm not getting any issues on my end. Of course, it could be YouTube, so so I apologize. Hopefully, it will fix itself. We had a little issue earlier today, too, where it bumbled a little bit during the earlier stream. Once they make it to shore... Nope, it looks like everybody's okay on their end. Once they make it to shore... They decide to go north, stay close to the shore. They want to get to Copper Ridge. 
uh, just get what information they can. And if nothing else, say, hey, there's some boats down there you can have. You know, I know it's a town having problems. So it took, uh, it takes them almost another half day. They went way further south than they thought. They don't really find anything along the river. Once or twice they may see a small boat out fishing. They kind of avoid it a little bit. And they make their way north. And by early afternoon they make it to Copper Ridge. Copper Ridge is even smaller than Helm. Um, with even less boats. Um, but very quickly they realize what they talked about with the swamp. Because they were already going through a bit of the swamp just to get to the town. Uh, they're almost ankle deep in water every five feet. Like it's just... It's kind of hilly. It's water dry, water dry, water dry. Uh, so they all have very wet feeties by the time they get there. So the river completely... It's, it's very close to the river. Surprisingly close. A couple hundred feet. Everything on the other side of its swamp. It's stuck between these two things. And many of the people have already left town making their way south, as is very common here in the north of Ormond. Back in the day, Ormond cared more about this, when pre-merge world, when Ormond ruled the world. Uh, now, not so much. Resources are more limited. What few people there are trying to make their living off of the river and the swamp, right? There's things to find in both places. Uh, fishing, of course. Uh, even a swamp's going to have animals and such. Maybe even some fishing and such in there. Frog's legs, mm, dandy. I'm just kidding, I don't eat those, that's disgusting. <laughs> um, so, uh, both of them are very dangerous. The swamp, a big swamp of this size, and the river. Uh, but the swamp does offer much more food options. So once again, when they make it here, um, once they make it here, they again, the people are a little worried, but they very quickly are like, no, no, just passing through. Helen sold us some boats, by the way, they're half a day south. We don't need them anymore. We're just trying to cross. If you'd like three free boats, there you go. And these people are like, seriously? They're like, yep, three boats. They don't do us any good. And that's like, that doubles our Navy. Yes, we'd love three boats. Thank you. I'm like, yes, we're just passing through with no intention of coming back through. And that's the other thing. They're like, oh, good. That's what we like to hear. No intention of coming back. Big, scary minotaurs and friends. The characters look good. Oh, you checked them out on the site? Thank you. Uh, I have a few more I haven't posted up yet. I have a there's a Merge Worlds Instagram where I post them and uh, Merge Worlds art and things like that. Uh, I haven't posted anything in a little while. I need to paint a couple more. We've got some new characters that I'll be putting in soon. So, uh, like I said, they have very few boats here, previously a mining town. Uh, the locals themselves are uh, pretty open-minded. In fact, when they get there, it doesn't seem quite much as much like Oromon. Uh, there's no symbols of Pandora anywhere. Uh, the men and women seem to be living relatively as equals. Um, and partially that could be because it's just so cut off. Nobody comes here. You know what I mean? The, few, the, the, the maybe 30 or 40 people that still live in this small town have lived here most of their lives. They were already relatively isolated from Ormond. And now no one comes here. They're just trying to make a living, trying to survive up here. Uh, so they're a little more open-minded as a group. Uh, and they don't have to, the heroes don't have to throw as much cash around to get some question uh, answered. Everybody here is a human, of course. Uh, there is absolutely no Oromanian influence here. There's no military, no soldiers, no nothing. Um, now, this group of people do not need money. So when Darsh and them are trying to apply for 
information. Uh, they very quickly learn that it is, they are much more uh, successful bartering goods. Now, they can't really afford to get rid of things like food and water. Those pickled fish are for emergencies. This is not an emergency. But it is a situation where they do have some things. They always have things like rope, you know, buckets, uh, casks of, uh, they'll have a, a good cask of uh, lamp oil and stuff. Dandy loves setting things on fire. There's always some type of burnable liquid in the chest of holding, which makes everybody else nervous. But Dandy loves setting things on fire, which is a concern for some people. Mainly anybody but Dandy. <laughs> now, things like that go over real well. These guys aren't going to get a lot of oil anywhere. You know what I mean? Lamp oil and such, that's a, that's, a, that's a big deal. And so I remember they traded a big cask of lamp oil, and uh, they traded some other goods, like, I can't remember what there was. I think they even traded a few weapons, because people talk that there's a lot of animals in the, uh, animals in the swamp that they deal with. I think they had some crossbows and stuff like that, and gave them, like, crossbow heads uh, and things like that, bolts as well. Like here, and they're like that. That's that stuff we can use. So what they do tell them is that the swamp itself, from what they've learned, what they've known living here since the merge six to eight years ago, uh, is that it goes at least, at least fifty miles, if not more. They go. That's as furthest anybody's ever gone in. And that guy got lost, and it took him two months to get back, and he was almost dead by the time he did. So there's, uh, you know, a lot of swamp. At the same time, there's nobody living up there. So our heroes are like, well, let's think about that. We could head south, where the land is supposedly drier. But even from everything they've heard from everybody, is everybody's moved south where they can get more help from the Empire. So if they go south, they may run into more military influence. Up here, it may be harder to travel... But they won't see as many people, and if it's true that Tobias is still cloaking them, it may be easier for him to do if they're not around other people. So they decide to travel through the swamp, which made me very, very happy. I will tell you that the swamp is massive and it literally would take weeks. It took them weeks to get through it all. It was much larger than they thought it was. And there were a few things they had to deal with. They had to fight some swamp creatures and such. I believe I had them fight a catablepus again. Already 200 subs into 14k. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, we're at like I think we were at uh, 14.225. We got like 25 in the last two days, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, uh, yes, so they had to fight a catablepus. Catablepus is a lot like uh, a hippo's body, but with a boar's head, with like a giraffe's neck that bends a lot more. I don't know if that helps or not. A boar's head with the tusks, right? And a very long neck that's very snake-like in the way that it moves. That actually looks like the, the fat round body wouldn't be able to support it. 
the problem with the catablepus is that they have that uh, pesky little uh, uh, gorgon ability. A gorgon is a medusa. Turning things to stone. So that's an interesting fight. I really like giving them odd creatures to deal with. In a normal fight, a creature like that, even though it has a pretty strong bite attack, and is surprisingly fast, wouldn't be that hard to take. But if you can't look at it, and you're fighting in a swamp, you know, where the water's knee-deep, it adds a whole sense of other complications. Um, the battle itself, they divided into two groups. And they tr basically surrounded it. It was a very good strategy. Uh, Nathalian stayed back with uh, the mages, and they were throwing range stuff as best they could. Um, and they split into two groups. And, you know, one group's like, hand over the eyes, swinging their sword. The Catablebus could only look towards one group at a time. And when it turned, that group would hide their eyes and yell out, and the other side would attack them, drawing, their, drawing its, uh, its attention. So it just was constantly going back and forth. No one got turned to stone, uh, but there were a couple pretty big uh, 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 injuries. I know that Wade and Lars, both the brothers, uh, both got hit really hard with like a bite attack, like big teeth through the shoulder, like it picked them up kind of thing and was shaking them around uh, with one of them. Uh, and that took like a lot of healing to get that fixed up. But uh, I remember that the, that was a, a particularly fun fight because it took a long time because they could only a few of them hit at a time. Nathalian and the mages did a lot of help in there because they were hiding behind trees. And if it looked their way, then everybody got to attack for a round. So they were always trying to get its attention. But this, they ran across that and several other giant snakes and things like that. Things you'd expect in a swamp. I think it was a panther they fought, if I remember correctly. I don't remember if panthers live in swamps, but I remember they fought a panther. Sometimes I'm weird like that. But, throughout it all, they didn't find anyone else humanoid. You know what I mean? They didn't find any humans, elves, dwarves. They didn't even find anything like goblins or orcs. Those things don't normally live in swamps e either. Um, and while they were constantly having to deal with things they've never dealt with before, like mosquitoes, you'd think that wouldn't be that big of a deal. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a swamp, but if a horde of mosquitoes hit, I've done that. Several hundred mosquitoes attacking you, that, that, those things can kill you with enough of them. I mean, not that they're drinking all your blood, but you can get sick. They carry diseases for a reason. And in a swamp, where some of them can be as big as four to five feet tall, that's even scarier. Do you know how much blood they could take out of a kender? All of it. All the drops of blood. So, they did have to deal with some uh, large insects as well. But they were constantly having to use heels and stuff just to take care of illnesses and things that they were picking up. There was no good water supply. That was something they ran into. They fortunately stocked up quite a bit. The water, the river, was good enough that they could boil it and fill up all their water. Uh, but there was no good water in the swamp. Even boiling it wouldn't work. There was just too much nastiness in it. Um, it was a dark swamp. It's the scariest of all swamps. <laughs> Sorry. Inside joke. So, 
they're dealing with a mess of that. Not to mention having to travel. There's nothing worse than, you know, somebody walking through the water and then suddenly they're gone. And everybody has to reach down as fishing in the deep well to pull them out before whatever. Not that a creature got them, but they just literally sank into a deep spot of water. So they end up going really slow. And instead of Dandy being up front as normal, Darsh took the lead because he's the tallest. You know what I mean? If he steps in and the water goes over his head, they know they're in trouble. Um, and at this point, he had gotten just a huge... He's walking with like an eight or nine foot pole. And as they're walking, he's just poking in front of them. There's been several times he'd poke something and something would poke back and then they'd end up having to fight it. There was a lot of small battles in the swamp. I want to say out of any adventure I've ever run with these characters, they had more individual battles in this swamp than in any other section. Because uh, it was it was just a dangerous, wild swamp. And while none of it, with the exception of the Catablepus, up to the point I'm about to get to, was dangerous enough that it would wipe out the whole party... It was enough to really hurt them and slow them down. Uh, the, the clerics stayed exhausted. By the end of any given day, they had no healing spells left. Every day. And it's not often that even clerics have to do that kind of thing. Every day, by the end of it. Even Garrick, what few spells he had, they're gone. Uh, they're, they're using a lot. This would have been a great place to have Kelvin, but they didn't bring Kelvin. I wish they'd brought Kelvin. Kelvin would have had a blast. Kelvin's the, the Kender cleric of nature. He would have had a blast in the swamp. So, this goes on for like a good week, week and a half. With no end in sight. They're still heading west. There's Every day there's conversations, do we need to start going south? Is this too much? But, the one thing that they have plenty supply of is food. Uh, there's plenty of things, from mushrooms to plants. Their fishing is phenomenal. It's easy to catch fish. You can't walk three feet without accidentally kicking a fish. Darsh kicked a fish. I think he kicked a fish at Dandy. And she got really mad at him for it. And he laughed and said something about that's for the butter dish. <laughs> I just remembered that that had happened. Darsh saw a fish and he's like, I want to roll to kick the fish. He was just mad. He'd fallen in the water three or four times. He's like, I want to kick the fish. So I'm like, roll. And he rolled like an 18 or a 19. And he kicks the fish really hard. But he didn't say where. So I rolled a, a dice to see who, who got hit with the fish, and it was Dandy. And the fish was like a big fish. It hit her and knocked her in the water. It like, didn't hurt her or anything like that. But it was enough to knock her over, and she stands up, and this fish is flopping. She's like, why'd you kick a fish at me? And he's like, that's for the butter dish. And he just turned and kept on walking. It was a really funny moment. Uh, I'd forgotten that that had happened. That's a good one. <laughs> but anyways, Darsh poking the water continues on. Darsh kicking a fish. Um, Darsh, I should mention, took off the ring of water walking through all this. Because he don't want to be like, it's safe, guys! And then they walk behind him and thump, they're gone. So he did take off his ring of water walking so he could, you know, not walk on water and, and try to find any holes and such. And there were a couple times he'd sunk and they had to pull him out. They're traveling through the swamp. They're about, I want to say, 11 or 12 days in at this point, And they're miserable. Everybody's in a bad mood. And I'm like, and I have to apologize because I've been making dad jokes long before I was even old enough to be a dad. I'm not a dad, but I'm just saying. And one of the common questions they'd have to ask is, okay, we're traveling through this area. How deep's the water? I think it's about ankle deep. Okay, cool. Shin deep. And we get through here and they said, I said, okay, you're traveling through a section 
that's fortunately a little clearer than normal. You're not having to cut as many vines and march through it's a little clearer. And they're like, excellent. How deep is the water? I said, knee deep. They're like, excellent. And they start traveling again. And I'm, I'm explaining some things. And I went, knee deep. And they're like, excellent. The water's staying the same. They didn't ask. I just told them. And this continues for the next four or five minutes. This is me playing with the characters looking at me. And every so often I say, knee deep. And they're like, we understand. The water's knee deep. I said, no, that's what you heard. And they're like, what? I said, knee deep. That's what you heard. It was then that they were attacked by the Vyogi. Or by the Gog, I'm sorry. So the uh, Vyogi are a race of frogmen that are found in swamps. Knee deep. Very corny. It's very funny sometimes. But uh, they had no idea what I was hinting at. I was like, knee deep. That was the sound. They were attacked. Vyogi are intelligent to some degree. Um, they, you know, loincloths and spears kind of thing. They're very uh, primitive. Um, but they're very fast in the swamp. And they're by beetle. They walk on two feet. They don't hop like frogs or nothing. But uh, they get attacked by probably about 50 to 60 of these things. And they have crude wooden spears. Maybe even a bow and arrow. Um, but what they had was numbers and the ability to move through the swamp very, very quickly. Your dad has that joke and that's the first thing you thought of. Knee deep, baby. I, I love the knee deep joke. From that point on, anytime I say knee deep, they're like, what do we see? I'm like, I'm just kidding. They could be walking through town. I'm like, knee deep. They're like, are there frogmen in the town? I'm like, there's no frogmen in the town. <laughs> but anyways, that's kind of how I roll. So a large amount of Vyogi, and some of them come up out of the water, because like a frog, they can hold their breath a long time. They come up out of the swamp. It's clearly an ambush. Had anybody caught on to what I was saying, which I hadn't planned on them doing, I would have maybe given them a chance to see it coming. Uh, but nobody did. And suddenly, frogmen everywhere. That They don't stand more than three to four feet high on average. Uh, so they're shorter than humans, but definitely taller than dandy. Because I think Dandy's... Yeah, Dandy's the only short person here. Mercy and Artemis are the next shortest. Because they're both barely at 5'2 and 5'4. Uh, most, most people are pretty tall in this group. So immediately, Lucas and the two elven Templars go into protect Artemis mode. And she's like ready to cast spells as needed. And everybody starts fighting. Now, it's just a grand melee. And I mean that... They pop up out of the water between them. So it's not like they're a cohesive force. It's like being on a battlefield with people attacking you on every direction. It wasn't something that they'd ever had to really deal with other than on the battlefield. So things like initiative and who gets to go first and who does what was very, very challenging in this fight because we had to direct it in a very different way than normal. Because I had a map that I had drawn their placement. They told me their party order, traveling through the swamp, they're walking usually side by side, two by two. So I knew their party order at this point. Um, Darsh being at the front and such. Um, and I believe it was Seamus in the very back. Yes, Seamus in the very back. But these things come at all, all, at all angels. And there were some of them that had bows, which were specifically targeting the larger guys. The three minotaurs and 
Weston, who's a big buff dude. He's a very big dude. He's very Brad Pitt, long hair, very luscious. And uh, Seamus and such. Um, but they were definitely targeting the bigger guys first with the, with the ranged weapons. And melee was just in there. So even folks like Nathalian really didn't get the chance to use his bow because it was all melee. He didn't have any choice. So all of the ranged stuff was out. Dandy's fighting. Uh, Darsh, literally every hit he could kill one. Like Darsh, these things are small enough that if he hits one, which could be a little challenging because of their speed, he, he did enough damage to kill one. Mercy was not far off from that either. Uh, so they just kept coming. That was the problem. There were so many of them that they were just getting swarmed. And occasionally, somebody would get knocked over. If somebody gets knocked over, they're usually submerged. And so now, based on the party order, people have to try to get them up, which opens them up to taking damage, to be making it harder to defend themselves. And there were several situations where that happened. Where uh, I want to say Dandy went under twice. Uh, Artemis didn't. Artemis never took a melee hit. Uh, everybody around her protected her really, really well. She had, she had the best defense in the whole group. Those two elves are pretty badass. Um, and Lucas is no slouch. But they're uh, doing their stuff. And fighting and killing and smacking and things of that nature. The fight goes on for about 10 minutes, which is a pretty long time for a group like this. And it's just, like I said, it's a grand melee. People are yelling out, I need heals, and who can I see? You can see these three people. I cast a heal at them. Do any of them need it? The mages, I cast a fireball, or I cast a what? What do I see? Four people here. I don't know where anybody else is. Okay, I'll shoot it over there where I don't see any of my friends. You know, it's, it's that type of thing where you don't even know where everybody is in the fight. It's just so... In the vines, and the water, and the falling, and all of that kind of stuff. The battle ends. And I mean that because they retreat. They've, enough of them were taken down. There's little frog bodies all over the place. That the rest of them retreated. And they could tell that there were more. There were many more. They could see at least another 30, 40 like, hanging back. Ready to jump in if needed. And the party was starting to get swarmed a little bit. They were getting in trouble. So immediately the party's like, why did they stop? Because they don't trust me, man. I'm just a hard-working dungeon master trying to make a good story, but there's no trust here. Hurtful. Hurtful. They're like, is something bigger coming? <laughs> like, no, you don't see anything bigger coming. Like, do they have a frog champion? I'm like, you don't see any big frog barbarian champion. They're asking me all these questions. Do we see this? Do we hear any more words like knee-deep? I'm like, no, that faded out. They all take off into the water. A lot of them submerge. You don't see them anymore. And then they ask the question I'd been waiting for. Is everybody here? And the answer was no. They very quickly take stock of who's in the group and realize that there are two people missing. Miss Dandelion and Miss Miyasha were nowhere to be found. They immediately start searching the swamp. They're on hands and knees. They're crawling. Make sure no one's unconscious underwater. Throwing the frog bodies. Make sure they're not stuck underneath of them. They do a big thorough search. Everyone's calling out, but no. 
They search greatly, but they find nothing except Dandy's hoopack floating in the water. Well, now they're angry. They've taken two of their friends. It's the only thing they can assume. Why did the frog people want them? Prayed it wasn't for breeding. They took Dandy and they took Miyasha. Seamus is very concerned. It's at this point that now they have to try to track the Viogi. It's a swamp. It's not easy to track in the swamp. But they have a few people that are extra good at this. Extra being bad. I'll say incredibly good at this. And that is Nathalian. He's an elf. And he's a woodsman for the first couple hundred years of his life before he started living on a boat. Both Lars and Wade are rangers. They've got that skill in spades. They're very good at that. And you have Quan, who's just a sneaky dude. So the four of them, it takes a little bit of time, but they're finally able to make up somewhere of a direction and the party you know, abandons their path and now it's all hell's bells to get up there to find their friends. Because for all they know, they could be being cooked for dinner or what else they could not take the chance of leaving the poor ladies behind it takes them several hours they lose the track several times but finally pick it back up it takes them several hours before they finally come to what can only be described as a large lake now it's not a huge lake. They can see the other side of it. Darsh could probably swim across it in 10 or 15 minutes, but it's a good-sized little lake. And there's not as many trees sticking out of it. They're all around the edges, which lets them know that this is a deeper water than normal. Now, if they're looking at the lake, and they were to look off like, like a Y, to the, ahead and to the left, they can see huts on the shoreline over there. And they can see Viogi. Walking, gathered on the shore. A bunch of them over there looking at their direction. So they know they found the right place. Nathalian's got his bow out and he's like, I might be able to hit one from here, but I don't know where our friends are. I'd hate to miss and hit somebody. Let's see if we can find out. So everybody's got their gear. They're ready to march in. And they start to walk around the lake. But the Vyogi... Don't keep looking at them. In fact, after a minute, they realized the Vyogi weren't looking at them at all. The Vyogi were looking out further into the lake. For the first time, they asked me, what do they see in the lake? What they see are two very crude rafts floating towards the center of the lake. A very small person and a very large person, one strapped to each raft floating towards the center of the lake. Well, there's their friends. Do they go and attack the Vyogi, or do they try to save their friends? Well, of course, they're going to try to do both. <laughs> they can multitask. Fearing that their friends may be still in danger of the Vyogi, there could be more Vyogi in the lake. They can swim and hold their breath much longer. They're aware of that now. 
They try Darsh is getting ready to walk across the water. He's ready to run over there. Because he's like, I know the Vyogi aren't expecting that. He's got his ring back on. He's got his boots are charging. And as he's about to go charging over there to grab the girls, who appear to still be unconscious. They don't seem to be moving around. About that time, something begins to rise from the center of the lake. The creature before them is unlike anything they've ever seen in size. It's humongous. It's massive. Not only is it probably 30 to 40 feet high, they can only assume, since they can only see the top half of it coming out of the lake. <laughs> hey, Paul. All right, can't stay. I got you. Yeah, but thank you, Paul. <laughs> Paul always gets to, doesn't get to watch these in real time, so he, he popped in, gave a like, and then left before I ruined anything for him. The creature rises out of the water. At least the top half of it does. Two massive bulbous eyes on the top. And they see that their friends on their raft are floating towards this creature. The Vyogi are jumping up and down, chanting, banging drums. It is clear that these two women are meant to be a sacrifice to a monster known as the Froghameth. A massive, massive frog. A ginormous frog beast that stands 50 feet high rises from the center of this lake. They worship it as a frog god. And it looks down and sees some food floating towards it on rafts. Because it is just an animal. It's not super intelligent. It's just the biggest frog in the world. And it is standing knee-deep. And that's where I'm going to call it for today. Just a couple minutes early. I think that's a good spot. We'll take up here. I'm going to give a couple minutes for questions because I'm starting to do that now at the end of streams, giving a good couple minutes in case anybody has any particular questions about what we've gone over or something in the past. But that is where I'm going to stop for today. Just a couple minutes early. So we will continue next week with the Frog Hameth. Maybe you'll want to Google one. Sure, it's out there somewhere. The favorite thing about the swamp is it let me pull out creatures I normally don't get to use. Because I don't go through a lot of swamps. So I tried to use that to my advantage to introduce new creatures and new different types of combat. As a DM, part of the thing about any type of adventure is keeping it feeling fresh. You can only fight goblins so many times. You know? Um... And one thing that's important to me is to have different types of creatures because this is Merged Worlds. There's stuff that they've never seen or heard of before. That was, that was the whole purpose behind creating Merged Worlds was letting me put anything from any world that I could think of together and have a justification why people would not know what it is. Um, it's why people are having to all travel through lands that they've never seen or heard of before. So... Ah, you found it. Hey, Ashley Googled it. <laughs> yeah. Frog Hameth. But, uh, you know, keeping 
combat fun and exciting is is really a challenge, especially when people start to get high enough levels that they can one-shot the average monster. Um, but one thing that I've always tried to do that I feel that a lot of DMs miss out on opportunity-wise is to give them greater monsters. And when I say greater monsters, I mean the next level or next evolution. If they come across a goblin, why can't that goblin be level 15? Who says that goblin hasn't been out adventuring, leveling up, doing his own thing? And now you see a goblin who has a decade of experience carrying a few magical items of his own and some mad skills. There's nothing wrong with taking a regular, boring type kind of monster and leveling him up and making them challenge him. You know, and I, I, I try to do that occasionally, but I've always found that interesting creatures that they don't know how they work are always a little more exciting and will usually make them use up some of their magic items, um, which is the other problem any DM has. If you have hoarders for characters who hate using magic items, then when big things do happen, they happen to have a whole bunch of magic, magic items and potions and stuff that can negate some of your uh, big bosses or, or the really stressful moments. So throwing in some things they don't understand will a lot of times help them use stuff that they were saving for a special occasion because this becomes a special occasion. Um, so that's why I look for interesting things. Uh, first thing I do whenever I'm creating an area, I'm like, okay, we're going through a swamp. And I start going through all my monster manuals, of which I've got about 12 because I have a bunch of appendixes and add-ons for monster manuals that came out afterwards. Now, what's in a swamp? What's in a swamp? What's in a swamp? And I do that. You can put anything in a swamp, right? You can have a dragon in a swamp. You can have a goblin in a swamp. But a lot of creatures that are designed for swamps will have skills and abilities that will aid them in that type of terrain. Like the Viogi, being able to breathe, hold their breath underwater a long time and move quietly under the water. Uh, that's a cool thing that you come across them in a, you know, the forest. It's not going to be able to do anything. So there we are. Ask where we are for Merge Worlds today. I thought I'd give just a little bit about uh, DMing there at the end, because I do get a lot of questions about that. Um, I appreciate all of you coming by and let me tell my story. Um, today I got to uh, introduce some interesting travel terrain. Uh, today was a lot about just kind of giving an idea of the adventure they cross and how difficult this is. Because you got to imagine, they've been traveling for weeks at this point. They have no idea if they're even close. They have no idea what's going on back in Serenity. They have no idea what's going on with their families and their kids. Uh, this was one of the bigger long-term challenges because not only were they away from home, they brought half of home with them. A lot of the people that they would depend on being at home, taking care of things, are walking with them right now. Um, so that, that had a lot of stress that put a lot of pressure on them to try to keep moving as quickly as they can. What's the best way we can go? But we have to go through the swamp because even though it slows us down, we're less likely to run into Oromon and get in trouble. So uh, it, it added a different type of stress to their travel that was uh, uh, allowed me some different opportunities. But I do appreciate you coming by and hanging out today uh, and hanging out with me. Um, I will be back again here next Thursday for more Merge Worlds at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we will deal with the Frogahomoth and meet a puzzling character. I don't normally give hints like that. We're going we're gonna to meet a puzzling character. So, uh, if you had a good time today, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind clicking like, 
whether you're watching this today or 10 years down the road. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the channel. Join our Discord channel. Chat with me if you have questions about Merge Worlds. Uh, you can go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a link to our Discord on the front page. There's also the characters page where you can find little minis that show what a lot of these characters look like. Um, I'll be adding a couple more here within the next week. If you want to follow the Merge Worlds Instagram, they usually go up there first. Um, if you are listening to this on the audio podcast, hey, thank you very much as well. Be sure to follow this, follow the podcast Click like or subscribe or whatever that... Po- Spotify and iTunes are so different. I don't know. Whatever your one you're listening on does, it'd be awesome if you'd follow along and come back. If you'd like to give a rating or a review, that would be awesome as well. It definitely helps put the podcast in front of more eyes and ears. So, thank you so very much for coming. It was a lot of fun. I'll be back here again tomorrow night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern for some uh, Minecraft live streaming. Uh, so, hopefully, we will see some of you then. But in the meantime, uh, have yourself a great weekend. Hopefully I'll see you on the Discord. If you're traveling to the beach, travel safely. That's not targeting anyone specifically, I'm just saying. And uh, watch out for anything knee-deep in the water. All right, folks, you guys have yourselves a wonderful day, and I will see you again. Thank you so much for hanging out with me in Merge Worlds.